the Citizens Report for the 13th of November 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks Elisa and to be clear that's Friday the 13th of November. Yes let's it hope is. It, let's hope this goes well. <laughs> and today's show, fight the bail-in and debanking crimes against Australians and banking mafia's worst fear coming to life, public banks. So first today, fight the bail-in and debanking crimes against Australians. Now, this week we have generated a real shock effect in the Parliament on the bail-in fight. Now, we have 17 days to go until we have an opportunity with Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts's legislation, uh, to block the bail-in of deposits. What we did, Elisa, was because Parliament sat for a week, and they're all there. And so we've asked people, instead of calling them their electorate officers, call them in Parliament. You know, picture, walk at these, I've you know, walked them a hundred times, these long, long corridors. Um, even Get Smart would have a rest going down these things. But they're full of officers on each side, right? And, you know, we, could, we created the effect where people walking down these corridors, all they're hearing is ringing. And it's phones ringing in those offices from people calling up about one subject, bail-in. And we know, it, we know it had an effect. Political staffers were reporting back to the people who were calling them. They were being flooded with calls. They were being flooded with emails. So what that did is by the end of the week, it had elevated the status of this issue. Because, and that's important because a lot of people in the major parties would like to think, oh, this is a, this is a, um, a marginal issue by a minor party. No. What we, it's, not, it's got nothing to do with that. It's about what if the pub, we know when the public find out about bail and they're universally outraged, right? So we're doing our best to make them aware but also do something. And that's what we achieved. We, we took it from being sort of a marginal issue to something that's at the front of their minds. Now we've got two weeks to consolidate that. It's very important for the next two weeks. People need to keep calling their senators. You've got 12 senators in each state plus your local member of parliament. That's very important as well. You've got to call your local member of parliament Plus, Stephen Jones, who's the shadow assistant treasurer for, La for the Labor Party. Because the only hope of passing Senator Roberts' bill will be with Labor's support. Labor has no reason to protect the government here. Scott Morrison, the, the Morrison government passed the bail-in law tw in 2018. Labor didn't. They've got no reason to protect them. Um, and they, they, they've got no reason to, to say to the public, well, you know, uh, we don't want to tighten... Clarify the law, mm. right? All this does is clarify the law. Remember that. So that's what we that's what we need to do. Fourteen calls we need people to make in the next two weeks before Parliament comes back again. Now, also this week we had a demonstration of how this could actually work, where the Greens put up two different Senate motions on uh, demanding justice for Julian Assange and opposing the lowering of bank lending standards that the government's pushing through. Um, so how does this show? how we can get the breakthrough we need. Well, so these were two... Well, the Julian Assange motion was controversial. The, the lowering lending standards motion should not have been controversial, except that it's something that the government is doing to help the banks lend more money at the moment. This government does everything they can for the banks. In fact, a source, a very well-placed source, called me in the middle of the week 
to report that they had spoken to an even better connected source who said, look, the banks are very happy with the Morrison government at the moment. They're bending over backwards for them. And, and my source said, yeah, well, of course, who, who do you think runs Canberra? And this other source said, yeah, I agree. Um, so the, the, the lowering lending standards is something to helps the banks. And what the Labor Party usually does is, is they'll talk a big game, but when push comes to shove, they always, they always cave, right? But on this one, they didn't. They actually voted with the motion to stop the Morrison po policy of lowering lending standards, and the motion passed. Now, this is, this is not binding, but it sends, it's a shot across the bow for Josh Frydenberg if he wants to legislate this lower lending standards that Labor has said in a Senate vote they're not going to do it. So that's why it passed, with Labor support. Likewise, Julian Assange. Now, Julian Assange is someone that we've championed on the show. He has exposed war crimes. What's happened to him is a grave injustice, except when Julian Assange first exposed those war crimes, his biggest attackers were in the Australian Labor Party. We had a Labor government in Australia, Julia Gillard. She called him a criminal. The Attorney General at the time, Robert McCullough, threatened to charge him with treason. That's what they were doing in 2011. In 2020, Labor in the Senate voted for a motion to free Assange. Right? That shows you things... So it shows you two things. One, if Labor votes for something, we can the motion can pass, and that's what we need to happen on this bail-in law. But two, Labor and politics in general is not set in stone. You can shift it, mm. right? And that's what we're trying to do with this bail-in law. Yes. Now, another one of the crimes of the banks we wanted to talk about is, and we put a press release out about this yesterday, um, we've talked before on the show about a number of people that have been debanked because they represent an alternative to using the banking system uh, allowing the cash system to continue to function in this country, which of course is still legal, but there's a big effort to outlaw it in order to get um, policies such as negative interest rates to um, get, gain traction so that people are forced to stay in the banking system as well, of course, as bail-in, because if you can pull your money out, bail-in to save banks won't work. Uh, so tell us about the case of Paul Th Thomas from um, Commander Security, which is a cash and transit business. So Paul Thomas, and we've mentioned his case um, recently, we did a press release that said debanking is a, is a weapon in the war on cash. And Paul Thomas is a secondary target. He's not a bullion dealer or a Bitcoin trader or a remittance company. He's someone that supplies cash to them and to ATMs, etc. So he's just a services, he has a, he has a small services business. He's in competition with things like Armaguard, basically, right? Um, Westpac debanked him. Now Westpac did this, Westpac's basic excuse for debanking his business is, we don't want to have any exposure to the cash economy anymore because we just got this $1.3 billion fine um, from Austrac for money laundering things, so we want to be squeaky clean. Now, it's a rubbish excuse, but that only applies to debanking his business. What they did yesterday was this. I want you to find this Nancy Boy Elliot Ness. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. So that was Al Capone from the movie The Untouchables and a shout out to the great Sean Connery who died recently, who got an Oscar for that movie. That was, um, that's, what, that's what banksters and gangsters do, right? And that's what they're doing to Paul now because two days ago he received a letter from Westpac. They're now closing his, an account he's had, for, his personal account for 30 years. His account's affecting his family. They're closing those as well. These people are vicious gangsters, these bankers, right? When they, they, when they set out to crush you, they crush you. And that's what they're trying to do um, to Paul Thomas. This is outrageous. This is criminal. Mm. And banks should not be allowed to do this.
right? So we have um, gone into bat for Paul's behalf because it's not just um, his person. It's not just affecting him personally. It's a, he's, there's hundreds of people being debanked around Australia at the moment. Mm. Paul's getting contacted all the time from people in remittance companies, for instance, that are just having to shut down because the banks are refusing. Because even though they work in the sort of like the alternative to the banking sector, everyone needs a bank account to to to, to function really, mm. right? And the banks know that, and they're using their power. And and there's another person whose case, Melbourne Gold Company, Michael Kulkulka, who this was done to him a while ago, and um, he, he hasn't just been debanked by one bank; he's been debanked by all of them, mm. right? So this is this is outrageous. The banks should not be allowed to do it, and um, we've highlighted this in in the context of what we're going to be talking about in the next um, segment, Elisa, which is that um, the one way to make sure banks can't do this sort of thing in the future is to have a public bank. Because a public bank will have to, by law, provide services to everybody, not be able to discriminate and not be able to just cut off someone's business and ruin, make their, their personal life really, really hard for no crime they've committed just because the banks, who are the ones that have committed the crimes, want to punish them. And, and, and I'm questioning whether punish, even punish Paul because of the fact he was willing to go public about this. Mm-hmm. Right? So... This is, this is outrageous and we've got to stop it. Yes, yeah, so we'll be right back after this break to discuss that public banking flank against the criminal banking cartel. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing banking mafia's worst fear coming to life, public banks. So as we were just saying in that last segment, um, everyone has the right to accessibility of banking services so they can operate either in business or just day-to-day life. Um, But that's become a major issue, particularly with banks, um, not just debanking and so forth and things that are that extreme, but even just shutting down bank branches all over the country, particularly in regional and rural areas. And this has come up, of course, in the ongoing fight uh, around Australia Post, which we've been talking about regularly on the show. And one of the issues that this has raised is Australia Post becoming a post bank, which the CEPU, the Communications Electrical and Plumbing Union, has called for back in August. And in their report written with um, the per capita think tank, they specified uh, that setting Australia Post up as a bank would also underpin the ongoing viability of Australia Post itself. And of course, this is something that uh, Christine Holgate, who had to resign recently as the head of Australia Post, was a real champion of. Yeah, and we've, we've now got that confirmed directly, Elisa. So I know directly that she was in uh, discussion over the course of her whole, over the duration of her time as CEO from 2018 to, to when she resigned a couple of weeks ago. She was in discussion with um, interested parties on that question. And knowing from what I can tell about how Christine Holgate operates, she was probably just pursuing it um, in a sense naively, um, not not aware of how big the opposition to this would be, just because it's a good idea. It's a great idea, right? It would would make the the branches viable, but it would be a great service for Australia as a country, right? People would flock to put their money in Australia Post Bank. but the, what she, I believe she ran into was the opposition from the most powerful lobby in Australia because it's the only thing that explains the, the carry-on of the Prime Minister on the day 
and Senator Jane Hume sitting there while she was being assassinated over effectively lies on that on that day in, in Senate estimates. Um, so, um, you know, what we're going to highlight now, though, is there are around the world examples of postal banks working and they work really well. Mm, and uh, one of the examples that the CEPU report raised was Kiwi Bank and we had a discussion recently with a uh, leading former leading banker here in Australia recently about this who said that when Kiwi Bank was set up in 2002 um, the banks here in Australia were watching it very very closely and watching the flood of deposits going into Kiwi Bank because it was established as a public bank operating through Australia Post, which uh, through New Zealand Post, which of course is very accessible. They're in all the communities and yeah. so forth. Um, and it was set up. It was the um, the labour of love of former New Zealand Deputy Prime Minister Jim Anderton, who had quit the Labor Party in 1989 over his opposition to Rogernomics, which is was the neoliberal economic policy named after the then Labor Finance Minister. Roger Douglas and uh, the New Zealand Herald reported that during the 1999 election Anderton had quote stood on street corners yelling with a megaphone at passing motorists about how New Zealanders were being ripped off by Australian owned banks and then in the 1999 election the Alliance Party of Jim Anderton entered into coalition with Helen Clark's Labor Party on the basis of a deal to restart some kind of postal savings bank and the New Zealand Herald reported on the negotiations saying that Deputy Labor Leader Annette King finally turned to Michael Cullen, who was the Finance Minister, after three hours of back and forth with Anderton and said these immortal words, Michael, Jim's beaten back every argument against the bank we've ever put up. For God's sake, give him the bloody bank. And Michael Cullen said, oh, all right then. Um, so, you know, it just goes to show one person passionately fighting and pushing for this can make the breakthrough and just being dogged about it, being determined about it. Helen Clark at the time had been completely sceptical and she admitted this after uh, Anderton's death. Her attitude was, how do we know anyone will use this bank, she said. But after, afterwards she admitted it did incredibly well. I was wrong and he was right on that one. And, I mean, it, it's a no-brainer. The story, this is a great story about how Kiwi Bank came about. It shows you you can achieve these reforms in um, politics. Now, can I just say, though, 20 years later, Kiwi Bank has lost its luster a bit because it does, you know, you do, you can't just set up an institution and, 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 um, and then not protect it from the, 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 the predators out there that are going to try and reform it and make it do different things and whatever that are all... They're all geared in little subtle ways to to, prop it, to, to support the the, um, the current financial system, right? But what Anderton, you know, and Anderton died last year, I believe. Um, you know, we should take our hat off to him. But you know, think about who this guy was. He, we don't, I don't know. We have an equivalent in Australia that when Hawke and Keating took the Australian Labor Party down this radical path of doing everything that every old Labor person would have rolled over in their graves for, privatising and deregulating this country to death. There was no equivalent in the Australian Labor Party who quit on principle to oppose that, right, and fought it for the rest of his life. That's what Jim Anderton did in the equivalent situation in New Zealand. And he knew that this issue of a bank was very, very important because this is what the Labor Party called the money power. If you, have a, if you let private finance dominate banking and there's no public alternative, 
um, there's nothing to constrain them, right? In his case, he was able to overlay the fact that it was Australian banks owning the New Zealand banks. So he fought and fought and fought on principle and he won, he persuaded, and, it, and sometimes it comes down to that kind of exchange that, that you just reported there. But it also shows you how blinkered the major parties can be, that even that it still took that fight for him to say, no, you, want, you need my votes in this coalition, you're going to get this bank, and they got it, right? Mm. So if that can happen there, yep. that can happen here, and it's happened in other places around the world. Now, after this quick break, we're going to talk about another example, which is the legendary Japan Post Bank. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing the public banking threat to the banking mafia. Um, and you can read more about this background to public banking and some of the examples in the Australian Alert Service. If you haven't already contacted us for a complimentary copy, please do so and we'll send you one. Um, now, the Japan Post Bank we're talking about now, um, which has 24,000 uh, branches or outlets around the country, has provided retail banking services continuously since 1875. It was very much influenced actually by um, the policies of the founder of national banking in the, within the American system, Alexander Hamilton, whom we've talked about before on the show. Um, basically, Japan, around that model, developed a very unique approach and their post office savings capacity became very efficient at attracting savings. In fact, it became known as Japan's second budget as a way of funding and channeling investment into national investment projects and it built so many of their roads and airports and so forth. Um, and it allowed them to avoid getting deeply into foreign debt because yeah. uh, used the savings of the people to fund the building of the nation. <clears throat> and just from a um, uh, from the Japan Post Bank website, uh, they had a, a good uh, insight into that, where they said that all of these this was in the post-war period they were talking about specifically. All of these uses of postal savings contributed to the development of Japan's post-war economy. The Japanese people became more affluent. This, in turn, resulted in further increases in the amount of savings. Consequently, a virtuous cycle was started with the growth in savings leading to further increases in the amount of investment in social development. In this way, postal savings increased in tandem with Japan's post-war economic growth. And Lisa, no one can deny that you know, Japan was a success story after World War II in terms of, uh, of an economy. That, you know, we talk about China now, but for decades it was Japan. And this shows you how a, a, a bank, like a postal bank, can take the savings of the people and put it to work exactly as we propose we would do in Australia for the, for the economic development of the country, which in turn makes the people more wealthy and they have more savings, right? So instead of having a total, and, and it's a huge deal, Japan has a massive government debt, it's massive, but the debt is to this bank, mm. right? It's not overseas, so when the Japanese government repays, it, services its debt, the money stays in Japan. Mm. And that's a big difference. Yeah, unfortunately, they partially privatised it beginning in 2007. Um, and there's various, they split it up into various different entities that provided different functions, whether it be banking or postal services, insurance and other things. And that's, you know, unfortunately the way of the world. Um, but even in the early 2000s, uh, just to show its potential and its strength still, it employed nearly one third of all Japanese workers throughout its various branches and was the largest employer in the country. Including um, as, as postmen. 
it does deliver the mail as well. Well, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um, now, in the United States, there's a, also a push, which is rather interesting, on the public banking model because uh, last year the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, the FDIC, put out a report and they said that half of all the people debanked in the United States can't Un have... Unbanked. The ones yeah, that don't unbanked, have I should yeah, say, yeah. unbanked people. They can't maintain a bank account because they don't meet minimum balance requirements, so they don't have enough money to keep in the bank, meaning it's the impoverished masses. Um, so there's been a push from many layers that we've reported over time. Uh, one of the most recent in just late October, uh, sorry, October 2019, I should say, so last year the Californian governor signed the Public Banking Act into law, which allows that city now and county governments to create or sponsor public banks. So it's become the second state in America on, on top of North Dakota, which has had public banking system since 1919, to go with public banking. Now, on the 30th of October this year, uh, two Democratic congressmen introduced a bill to create a nationally chartered public banking system. That's in addition to the Democratic Party's um, existing uh, Congress or legislation on the floor of Congress called the National Infrastructure Bank Act of 2020, which would put $4 trillion into infrastructure projects to create 25 million jobs. There is also uh, legislation on the table from House Republicans who've proposed the Infrastructure Bank for America Act. So all these um, different proposals have different aspects and pros and cons and so forth. But the impetus for it is, and it's shown by a, uh, a report from an infrastructure outfit uh, that has worked with states and various infrastructure agencies to map 500 shovel-ready projects, which we'll put up on the screen. But basically, the US, of course, has this mammoth infrastructure deficit which needs to be remedied. Of course, we do as well. But it also shows, I think, that regardless of who's in government, whether you're talking about the United States, whether you're talking about here because uh, political flavours come and go and yep. doesn't make that much difference really who's in power at any one time or another. What does make a difference, as we talked about in the last segment, is where you have individuals that are willing to fight for the principal action on things like public banking, things like infrastructure, which are rights of the people and the only way that citizens of any country will have a future is if you have that kind of development. And it's going to, the determining factor is going to be the economy, Elisa. If the economy was truly good, if the economy was truly delivering for everybody, right, if living standards were rising, we wouldn't have an argument for a public bank, right? The economy's not. We have a private bank dominated economy and they have flushed the economy down the toilet. They just fund things that give them the maximum profit and all it's given us is a property bubble, right? And everyone else is massively in debt, etc. and the cost of living is, is ridiculous. And so you can very easily say, well, look, back when we had a public bank, we used to be able to do these things that this financial system is not delivering on now. The, the, either the, the financial system that's part of the economy delivers or it doesn't. The economy is not delivering, so the financial system's not. And we have a government now, I don't care that they're liberal, they know they have a massive economic problem on their hand. How are they going to change it if they don't change their policies? And this is the number one policy they need to change, right? So what we, what we, when we talk about bail-in and, and all those sort of things, 
There are negative things about the banking system we have to fight against, the bad practice of the banks, the criminal mafia. Um, this is the positive thing that, will, that can just you know, be, a, be a, a broom that sweeps all that away and comes up with a much better functioning system for everybody. That's right. Um, go to YouTube to find out more. We talked about this in depth last week. We've run out of time again. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. See you next week. Thank you.